0: Welcome to the Technicast, the arts and humanities research podcast. I'm Felix Klutzen, and along with Polly Hember and Julian Klein, we talk to researchers and practitioners from across a range of disciplines. This is our second episode on genre, and if you haven't already, do please go and check out our first one, which was a brilliant and very engaging presentation and conversation with Jennifer Doveton about middle-class values in fantasy. Now today we're going to get a bit more conceptual, we're going to hear two presentations and follow it up with a discussion on the next episode. The first presenter is Edwin Gilson, who is doing a PhD at the University of Surrey, and I'm also delighted to say it's the newest member of our podcasting team, so a very warm welcome to him. And he will be talking to us today about the label of climate fiction, specifically to do with his research. In contemporary fiction set in California. And it's also a pleasure to introduce our second guest, Frankie Hallam, also doing a PhD at Surrey. And they are going to address for us speculative fiction, in particular science fiction, and its and our relationship with the world around us. And also look at why this label can sometimes be problematic. So sit back, enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side.
1: If you want to write a novel about our world now, you'd better write science fiction, or you'll be doing some kind of inadvertent nostalgia piece. You will lack depth, miss the point, and remain confused. The words of American science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson from his 2015 book Green Earth. It's a bold claim, but what exactly was Robinson getting at? To begin to answer this question, we only need consider the events of the last two and a half years. How often since the start of COVID-19 spread has the news resembled scenes from a dystopian film or novel set in a parallel universe or distant future? What Robinson was really referring to, though, was the climate crisis. He was reflecting on his Science in the Capital trilogy, which explored the intersection of science and politics, particularly in relation to the urgent problems presented by Accelerating human-caused climate change. The implication of Robinson's assessment is that the relatively rapid rate of environmental change in the 21st century has widened the parameters of the possible, has changed our understanding of what normality means. In this sense, his quote provides a useful starting point for a discussion about the relationship between reality and representation in the Anthropocene. The proposed name for our current geologic epoch, defined by the transformative human imprint upon the earth and its spiralling repercussions, including climate change. More to the point, Robinson's statement also invites an examination of the role of genre in contemporary fiction. This issue was also addressed by Indian writer Amitav Ghosh in his 2016 non-fiction book The Great Derangement. In Our Age of Climate Change, Ghosh argued, the kind of extreme weather events we may once have expected to find in so-called genre fiction... That is fantasy, sci-fi, horror, magic realism, for instance, are now, quote, urgently, overwhelmingly, astoundingly real. Genre boundaries have therefore become blurry, as authors adopt a variety of techniques and methods in their attempts to represent the dizzying realities of the climate crisis. The border between realism and science fiction, for instance, is fading with each new climate change novel. In his 2019 novel Gun Island, a fictional response to the issues he himself raised in The Great Derangement, Ghosh constructs a plot that appears fundamentally improbable. His protagonist, Dean Data, experiences a succession of climate disasters in his cross continental travels cyclone damage and coastal erosion in the Sundarbans and the Bay of Bengal, towering wildfires in Los Angeles, flash flooding in Venice, and a gargantuan tornado in the Venetian Lagoon. Crammed in among these catastrophes are all manner of freak incidents and coincidences. Dean is quite understandably disorientated by it all. Initially, he is adamant that the increasing improbability of his life is due to mere chance. To lose sight of that, he ponders, that is, to believe in some higher governing force rather than coincidence, is, quote, to risk becoming untethered from reality. Dean's confused rumination here encapsulates his feeling that he has entered a surreal new world whose version of reality departs drastically from that which he had hitherto known and trusted. This is life in the Anthropocene, Gosch suggests. The pretense of environmental stability has dissolved, and anything is now possible. Despite the apparent improbability of Gun Island's plot, Gosch has insisted it is a book about reality. That's really what it is. It's a book about reality. His rather needless repetition in this answer to an interview question suggests he is reinforcing one of his central contentions in The Great Derangement that literary realism must adjust its scope to encompass our new Anthropocene normal. All of this highlights the way that climate change has complicated questions of genre. I confess to being pretty confused about genre myself. Ostensibly, the novels I analyse in my thesis are all examples of so called climate fiction that is, fiction that seeks to represent climate change in some way, but I find this categorisation quite limiting. The climate crisis is not always front and centre in these novels. In some cases, it lurks menacingly around the edges of the plot, an ominous but rather elusive presence. In others, it has wrought unspeakable damage to communities and societies. Some of these novels are set in the here and now, some in a radically transformed future world. My research is situated at the intersection of literary spatial studies and ecocriticism. I adopt a region-specific analytical approach, focusing on 21st century Californian fiction that engages with climate change and related environmental issues. I don't have time to expand on my choice of California as a case study here, but I have found that foregrounding place and climate, rather than a particular author or literary movement, say, enables a scrutiny of the various genres and modes that emerge from this fiction. To demonstrate this point, I'll now give a brief overview of the three novels that comprise the first half of my thesis, all of which are set, at least in part, in Los Angeles. So, there is the aforementioned Gun Island, an epic global novel infused with elements of mythology. More specifically, Ghosh weaves the 17th century Bengali folk legend of the Banduki Sadagar into his narrative. As the book progresses, the myth in which a beleaguered merchant flees from the wrath of the snake goddess Manasa Devi and Ghosh's own plot grow increasingly entangled and uncannily alike. The legend becomes an allegory for the tension between capitalism and the natural world in the Anthropocene, embodied by the merchant and snake goddess respectively, and for the seeming implausibility of today's extreme weather events and ecological flux, as previously discussed. Although the Bunduki Sadagar seems nothing more than a, quote, wonder tale, Dean gradually realises it is rooted in the tumultuous global reality of the 17th century and the Little Ice Age. The outlines of the story are historically quite plausible, as his friend Sinta asserts. As Gun Island itself assumes a fantastical quality, with the environmental disasters and strange animal sightings piling up, the reader is asked to reflect on that relationship between reality and representation in the Anthropocene, as previously discussed. In the novel... Events like a non-native poisonous snake washing up at Venice Beach in Los Angeles are indicators of a planetary state, climate change and the related warming waters, rather than isolated, fantastical occurrences. The two other Los Angeles novels in my thesis are Maria Amparo Escandon's LA Weather and Alexandra Kleeman's Something New Under the Sun, both published last year. It would be difficult to file these novels under the same loose category, even while they both portray climate change, and specifically wildfire and drought, in LA. Escandon's book is a realist family drama. The author has said that everything she writes, quote, "...comes out as a telenovela," by which she means the Latin American equivalent of the soap opera. Her narrative flits between the inner worlds of each member of the Alvarado family as they grapple with anxieties and challenges on a domestic and planetary level. Divorces, illnesses, family schisms, and childcare issues sit alongside growing concerns about the climate crisis in California and further afield. The Alvarado patriarch, in particular, Oscar, exists in a state of perpetual eco anxiety, fueled by gloomy reports of drought and fire on the Weather Channel and in local newspapers, in addition to the physical evidence of these hazards in Los Angeles. In this regard, a scandal expands the parameters of the telenovela and, perhaps, of literary realism. To accommodate a planetary process and by extension to merge local and global scales something new under the sun also appears to resemble a work of realism at least at first the world we are introduced to initially seems true to life or how we might imagine a certain kind of glamorous los angeles life cleman's plot revolves around a hollywood movie set and the trials and tribulations involved in the film adaptation of protagonist patrick hamlin's novel so far so recognizably and reassuringly, L.A. The novel soon enters unfamiliar territory, however, with the introduction of Water, spelt W-A-T-R. This is the private company that is now almost solely responsible for California's drinking water amid devastating drought. Water has thus been transformed from a basic human right to an aspirational commodity available in a range of guises and prices, from basic to deluxe. There are elements of satire and dystopia in Cleman's L.A. Water is both a satirical critique of unchecked capitalism, the commercial exploitation and environmental crisis, and the grotesque dystopian endpoint of the prolonged drought that has been unfolding in California. While water seems like it belongs in a science fiction text, then, it encapsulates contemporary anxieties and exists in an otherwise recognisable world. At times, Cleman's examination of genre in the Anthropocene is very explicit, at one point, one of the movie's ruminative young production assistants suggests that, quote, a prophecy is the only thing that can be real, and that, quote, everything else is just a story told in the genre of realism, believable because it confirms the background or our expectations against a foreground of gentle, pointless surprise. In this rather didactic statement, we can detect echoes of the Kim Stanley Robinson and amateur gosh quotes referenced earlier. Cleman's implication is that science fiction or prophecy, as her character calls it, is often a more accurate and effective way of representing our fast-moving modern world, and especially the environmental transformations of climate change. The genre of realism simply cannot keep up with this rate of change, and thus comes to resemble an inadvertent nostalgia piece in Robinson's words. Hence, Something New Under the Sun is positioned somewhere between realism and science fiction in a genre-liminal space. The setting is familiar, the plot increasingly unsettling. All three of these novels are set in the early 21st century, in contrast to two other books I analysed in the second part of my thesis. Idan Lupiki's California, published in 2011, and Claire V. Watkins' Goldfame Citrus, 2015, present drastically altered, distant future versions of the Golden State. Due to the runaway impacts of climate change, California has been consumed by desert, which has swallowed up entire towns, cities, and communities the state is referred to as a, quote, failed experiment at one point in Gulf Citrus. As a result, the very concept of California is called into question. Is a place still a place when it has been disfigured beyond recognition? Both these novels fit more neatly with general conceptions of climate fiction, which has often been conflated with dystopian or apocalyptic fiction in literary criticism, publishing and media. Gun Island, LA Weather and Something New Under the Sun have also been branded climate fiction in reviews, however, despite the obvious stylistic and formal differences between these texts, and between them and California and cold Frame Citrus. While I understand the reasoning behind the emergence of the descriptor climate fiction as a way to categorise the ever-expanding canon of novels engaging with climate change, I am not sure how useful the term really is. As this summer's UK heatwave and drought has demonstrated, climate change is now an unignorable part of our modern reality. The phrase climate fiction seems to marginalise the climate crisis as a slightly niche subject, rather than an ongoing process that is already changing our experience and understanding of the world we inhabit. As climate change accelerates, writers will find new and inventive ways to represent it. In doing so, they might employ various features typically associated with a range of genres, as the authors discussed in this podcast have done, from science fiction to satire, drama to dystopia. Rather than remaining the central thematic concern of a specific literary category then, climate fiction, climate change may eventually permeate contemporary fiction as a whole, blurring and even transcending genre boundaries. To paraphrase Kim Stanley Robinson again, writing about our world now, and the climate crisis in particular, requires narrative experimentation and an open-minded approach to genre.
2: we are rapidly approaching the conditions for what some may consider an environmental apocalypse. Droughts, wildfires, storms and tsunamis are more frequently iconographic of the evening news than the movie Mad Max. When science fiction is looking more and more like real life, how do we approach these climate apocalypses in literature? When what once was considered a speculative vision of the future is a lived reality for thousands across the globe. To begin, I ask, What is the question of science in science fiction? For critic Darko Suvin, science fiction as a genre moves beyond the scientific tropes it is commonly associated with, such as the introduction of new technologies or biological life forms. Suvin offers up a definition that, instead, describes science fiction as a literary mode that attempts to disorient or estrange the reader from their normative, cognitive understanding of the world they inhabit. Science fiction enables us to consider strange new worlds, not just of physics, technology or biology, but across anthropology, sociology, history, geography and psychology, and yes, climate science. Suvin's definition of science fiction perhaps explains how the earliest examples of climate and environmental literature relied on tropes of science fictional estrangement from the perceived world to communicate emerging ecological knowledge to readers. Rachel Carson's 1962 Silent Spring is deemed a work of climate nonfiction and is one of the earliest and most influential climate communication texts. Yet this work of climate nonfiction decides to begin with a narrative account, what she calls her fable for tomorrow, in which she depicts an American town ravaged by climatological disaster. Here is an excerpt There was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? Many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyard were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were moribund. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and a score of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marsh. On the farms, the hens brooded, but no chicks hatched. The farmers complained that they were unable to raise any pigs. The litters were small, and the young survived only a few days. The apple trees were coming into bloom, but no bees droned among the blossoms, so there was no pollination, and there would be no fruit. The roadsides, once so attractive, were now lined with browned and withered vegetation as though swept by fire. These too were silent, deserted by all living things, even the streams were now lifeless. Anglers no longer visited them, for all the fish had died. No witchcraft, no enemy action had silenced the rebirth of new life in this stricken world. The people had done it themselves. Carson's vision of a countryside devoid of animal life is an imagined tragedy. Through imagining fields and fields of silence, she takes her reader to another land. This land, in which the ravages of man-made climate change reach such a peak as to quieten all non-human life, allows its reader to be transported, to be estranged from the comforts of their own world in its science-fictional glimpse of a near future. I argue Rachel Carson's fable for tomorrow is an inseparable part of a genealogy of 20th century ecofeminist science fictions, such as the genre-defining work from Ursula K. Le Guin, Sherry Tepper, and Octavia Butler. For the late Le Guin, science fiction has, since the mid-60s, been actively engaged in socio-political critique. American science fiction in the 60s took on environmentalism, the Vietnam War, civil rights, colonialism, and feminism, all with, as Le Guin puts it, breadth of subject, the depth of treatment, the sophistication of language and technique, and the political and literary consciousness of the writing. For 60 years, science fiction has been working to prove itself as a serious contender for complex engagement with the realities of living in the world. If you want to speak towards our time and place, what better way than considering possible other times and other places? Consider the influential text of Frank Herbert's Dune, in which a declining empire fights wars over the planet Arrakis and its spice, which was written in part as an allegorical to the ecological and colonial violence of Western oil extractivism in the Arab states of the Persian Gulf. June is about the future and the exoplanetary as much, if not less so, than it is about the here and now on planet Earth. Why then would the literary climate fiction seek to separate itself from its interconnected roots in science fiction? I note how three predominant authors of dystopic fiction have decried the genre. Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam trilogy, Jeanette Winterson's The Stone Gods, and Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven are three works of fiction that feature recognizably post-apocalyptic science fiction settings that concern themselves with the environmental and technological conditions that lead to a future dystopia on Earth. All three authors have, at some point, rejected the science fiction label being applied to their books, with Atwood claiming that her work cannot be science fiction as, quote, Science fiction has monsters and spaceships. This is put more simply in an interview with Jeanette Winterson, who simply says, I hate science fiction. And after initially showing confusion that her book was nominated for the prestigious Arthur C. Clarke Award, Emily St. John Mandel later admitted one of the central tenets of her book was directly inspired by a 1999 episode of Star Trek Voyager. There is resistance to the science fiction label, Cynically, I wonder if authors fear that the tarnishing slur of genre will preclude some from the prestige of literary fiction's many accolades. But what is to be gained when we draw up borders between the serious, introspective label of climate fiction away from the unserious pulp origins of science fiction? Climate fiction scholarship that attempts to marginalise or obscure its undeniable debt to genre fiction, with its continued reappropriation of science fiction's tropes, poses a serious hindrance to learning how to speak to either our climate or its literatures. Though this resistance to mutual understanding is not exclusive to the world of climate fiction, there is a long and contentious history from within science fiction communities themselves of attempting to gatekeep certain texts from the sci-fi label. To reappropriate Margaret Atwood, the claim decried, well, how can The Handmaid's Tale be science fiction? Science fiction has monsters and spaceships. Ultimately, this conversation in science fiction communities, accompanied by many scandals such as Race Fail 09 and the Sad Puppies Slate at the Hugo Awards, revealed that much of this attempt to purify the sci-fi genre was more invested in removing women and people of colour from the conversation to shun authors who used the conventions of science fiction to imagine new worlds, disrupt racist and sexist hierarchies, speak to our environmental futures, and speak truth to power. As Adeline johns putra argues... Prejudices that determine genre fiction to be less deserving of scholarly attention than literary fiction have resulted in a significant hindrance to scholarship on climate change literatures, because probably the vast majority and most read of fictional engagements with climate change are genre novels. I argue attempts to meaningfully narrate the here and now of our very real experiences of climate change would necessitate thinking science fictionally. If not, writing science fiction genre itself. To narrate climate change is to embrace alternative viewpoints and experience parallel times and spaces. To extract humans from our limited, localized planes and consider thinking like and with something the size of a planet. To reach deep into our ancient pasts and find what there is building our distant futures. To take on, into ourselves larger, non-human and alien perspectives of trees and skies and seas. All of these are science fiction and are necessary for contending with our Anthropocene Earth.
0: Thank you to both Edwin and Frankie for sharing their thoughts with us and for giving us some inspiration for the way that we think about the relationship between fiction and reality. So we'll all speak to you again on the next episode and to try and snuffle out some more insights for you on the ideas concerning genre.
2: Have a lovely week, and I'll speak to you soon.